Let's talk about that cross this morning. Let's take our Bibles and let's head to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians, chapter 6. If you don't have the sermon notes, the fellows are moving around the auditorium. They have some extra copies. That if you don't have that in the bulletin, one from the bulletin, just raise your hand there. give that to you. We are delighted this morning to have one of our family members from our church who haven't been able to be with us week after week, month after month. But we are delighted they are here this morning. Jim and Dottie Kunselman, it is so good to have them back with us after months and months of being unable to be here, and we are delighted to see you both. Thanks for being here today. It's good to have you home, Jim, to be with us. Thanks for being here. We're in Galatians chapter 6 this morning, and we're following a series that's talking about God forbids. And so in that series that we've been talking about, we've been looking at different passages. The passage this morning is Paul says, God forbid that I would boast. And he's going to talk about boasting, and we know what that is for the most part. We're given to talking about and boasting about certain things such as our homes. There are some who boast about their kids, that, what they've done and what they've achieved. There's some who boast about their vacations and tell about it and talk about it. There's some who are really, really excited about their degrees, and I finally made it and I graduated. There are others who, they are really, they can tell you how to make some food. Okay, they, they have a recipe that they are delighted with. There are some who are, they are really delighted in their pets. You know, their pets can do it. And I had one of those pets. I understand that. Our dog could talk. I know that most can't, but our dog was special. We, um, we sometimes, we get excited and we talk about our achievements that are with the sports and the skills that way or how much we work. Yeah. Some will talk about how they just work so hard, never stop, and just go, 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 go. There are others who they will talk about, you know, what they did and how they help people and how they serve. And there's nothing wrong with that service. Then there's those of us who can't stop talking about our grandkids. And we'll, we will boast on them. And we understand that some of those things are really good things. And, some, and I'm not saying that all boasting is wrong. And that's not even where the message is going. But I do want to start off just to warn us. Now, be careful. Be careful. We do know, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich boast in his riches. We are warned in scriptures that we should let another praise us and not with our own mouth, a stranger rather than your own lips. So we understand. But that's a whole other topic. That's a whole other discussion about bragging and boasting. Paul gives us a positive boast. He gives us something that, you know, like the positive, you know, you're excited, you're delighted with what you achieved in the kitchen or, or in the sports field. He gives us something that really excites him. He makes comment about that in Galatians chapter 6, where you read in verse 14, but God forbid that I should glory, literally the idea of boast, saving the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what he does is he tells us that he is, he is really excited about it. He brags about it. He boasts about the cross. That would shock his audience. If we were living back then, we would be absolutely amazed that he would do such a thing. You see, today we think the cross is jewelry, something wonderful. We put it in the center of our worship services. You have it, some of you, even on medallions, or you have them in your homes. Back in Bible days, they wouldn't do that. The cross was representative of something that was shameful, something that was, that was ugly, something that was awful and had a really bad stigma to it. You know, it would be like you walking around with some of that jewelry that looks like a guillotine. You'd say, well, you know, that isn't a beautiful piece of jewelry or, you know, something that's macabre. That would be his statement be received that way. In fact, 
In Roman society, they didn't even use the word cross in their normal conversation and writings. They would refer to it, those in the, the polite society, then when they referred to somebody being put on a cross, they would even stay away from the word. That word, that idea of cross, they would call it the unlucky tree. And they would stay, and, and to get a sense, with, without being rude or crass or insensitive, to say, I boast in the cross, would be like you and I saying, I boast in a lynching. And we would find it reprehensible if somebody said that. Somebody would boast in a lynching. Well, when Paul says, I boast in the cross, that's the reaction of his audience. Because they wouldn't normally do that. And so when we look at Paul's words, to understand what he's talking about, we need to get the whole passage. We need to explore more than just that one verse and statement in verse 16. So if I can un, un, you know, unpack the message, let's talk about Paul's battles, set the scene. Let's talk about his beliefs. Then let's talk about his boasting and then where that led him to with his burdens. Let's pick the first part. Let's start here. Paul was in a fight. That's why he wrote Galatians. We talked about this over two weeks ago, that there's this ongoing battle within the Christian community. There are a group of individuals that uh, they get called, they get named the Judaizers. They are peoples who they say they believe in Jesus, but they have Jewish background. And so they come out of Jerusalem, they follow Paul where he's going, and they, they, they hassle him. And they, they go to wherever they're finding new converts, they show up, and they say, hey, listen, now that you got saved, say we, we were all in that era, and I share the gospel with Jim sitting here below, and Jim responds and gets saved. Well, the Jewish crowd, the Judaizers would come up to Jim and say, hey, Jim, to really complete your salvation, you need to become a Jew keep our feast days, uh, do our, our rituals, the, you know, be circumcised, follow our dietary laws, do all those things because Jesus was a Jew and God had been working with the Jews for years. So Christianity, if you believe in Jesus, you have to become a, a, a Jew convert. And so what happens is they attach this idea of believing in Jesus plus Jewish good works equals salvation. And for Paul, this is a battle. This is a struggle. He is going to combat these fellows and tell them that's not true, but they're influential. They're powerful. We talked about it in Galatians 2, two weeks ago, how when they showed up at the city where Paul was working in Antioch, they were so influential that they got the Apostle Peter, Barnabas, and a lot of other Christians to all of a sudden start acting like Jews again and separating from the Gentiles. And Paul wrote about that in the first, cha- the first two chapters and saying, it's wrong. What you've done is wrong. The Gentiles don't have to become Jews They can believe in Jesus. Now, let me make a comment that this idea of believe in Jesus plus something else is still popular in our world today. There are people who say you need to believe in Jesus plus you need to get baptized and that'll complete your salvation. There are some who would say you need to believe in Jesus plus become a church member, then you will be able to get into heaven. Some would say you need to believe in Jesus plus eat certain foods or don't eat certain foods, then that'll help you to get into heaven, not only just believe in Jesus. Some would say, oh yeah, believe in Jesus plus give a lot of money, then you're going to get into heaven. Or others would say, believe in Jesus, speak in tongues, and then that secures your salvation. Or others would say, you need to believe in Jesus, plus wear certain attire or bonnets or certain colors, and then you'll, you'll complete your salvation. 
Or believe in Jesus, recite certain catechismic uh, catechisms, and then you'll have your salvation. Or the idea of if you say certain prayers. And there's all kinds of beliefs like this. There's all kinds of churches that believe in Jesus plus something that they tell you to do, then that'll complete your salvation. And Paul is combating that and arguing against it, and that's why he writes Galatians. His theme of Galatians is faith in Jesus alone equals salvation. You don't need to believe in anything else or anyone else or do anything other than put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by, not baptism, not church membership, not good works or good looks. It's all about Jesus and Jesus only. If you could get yourself into heaven by doing something else, then why did Jesus die? It's all about Christ. He died. He said on the cross, it is finished. He paid in full. And so Paul is writing that message, and he makes it very clear. And if we can just highlight a few verses, if you would, just back up with me. and Just get the sense of the text, because it plays into what he says in chapter 6. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I marvel that you Galatians are so removed from, so soon removed from him that called you into grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach and any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be anathema. Go to chapter 2. We'll pick up in the middle where he says in verse 16. To reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen. Immediately I confer not with flesh and blood. And he talks about how it's all about, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm in chapter 1. I want to be in chapter 2. He says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no man be saved. We go to verse 21 of that same chapter where he makes the comment, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness comes by the law, doing all those good deeds, then Christ is dead in vain. We go to chapter 3, verse 11. But that no man is justified, that is, has his sins forgiven, able to come into heaven, by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Chapter 3, verse 24. Wherefore the law was our school teacher to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith, not by works, but by faith. Verse 26. For you are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman under the law to redeem them. Not, it wasn't the law that redeemed, but Jesus redeemed them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons because you are sons. God hath, call, hath sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. Father, and he goes on, we read in, in uh, chapter 5, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Become not entangled again in those works of bondage, those yokes of bondage. And that leads Paul to the end of the book. He says in verse 11, You see how large a letter I have written unto you with my own hand. He said, These guys have upset me so much that they're twisting the gospel that I am writing. I understand what he's doing. In the language, in the time, in the era that Paul is writing, typically he didn't write his own letters. 
Almost every other letter, you'll see where he talks about how he has a secretary. It's called an amanuensis in Bible days. The guy who would write. And when they would write, they would write in small letters, no, no, no punctuation at all, no spaces, no paragraphs. It would just be the letter of the words would just go from line to line to line to line. But Paul says, you see what I'm writing with large letters. Paul has an eye problem. He talks about it in chapter 2. He talks about how you people would give your eyes for me. And so he has a sight problem, a visual problem. And he says, this upsets me so much that I am writing with large letters just saying these guys are wrong. It would be like you, when you would text, you would put a lot of different punctuation like, you know, the exclamation point or your emojis would be angry, 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 angry. And so he's writing that with great intensity and he's wrapping up his letter and he says, I'm still intense. These guys really bother me. I don't have time for them. And the next couple of verses, he tells us why. He tells us why these false teachers bother him so much. He says it's their message. Obviously, he's talked about the whole book. They are focusing on the outward. You, you, get, you get to heaven by doing outward things, they would say. And we would say, no, no, no. The Bible talks about getting to heaven by inward belief. They would talk about you doing the works. And you, it's, getting to heaven is dependent upon you. And we as believers would say, no, it depends upon God. Christianity is not about doing. It's about it's all done. And so he ha- he's already covered the message. But then he says, their methods really bother me. Look what he says in the next verse. As many as desire to make fair show in the flesh, they constrain you, Gentiles, to follow their rituals like circumcision, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross' sake. Neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you follow their rituals of circumcision that they may glory in your fa- flesh. What he's talking about is he says they're very forceful. They constrain. They come in, and they're not subtle at all. They come in like a Mack truck, barreling into the church and saying, Jim, you've got to do this. And they force, and they, and they give pressure, like they put on Peter, like they put upon Barnabas. And he says, they are very dogmatic, and they are very stringent, and they are very, keep our rules, do what we say, type of a thing. They're tyrants. They're dictators. They don't allow for the Spirit of God to do the leading. They believe they're the Spirit of God. So their methods bother him, but their motives also bother him. Okay? In their methods that, that they do and blends with their motives, they don't even keep the rules. They tell Jim here all the rules that he should keep, but they themselves don't do it. We call those type of people who preach to others but don't do themselves, we call them hypocrites. Okay, and he says that's what these guys, they're a bunch of hypocrites. They will keep all these, tell everybody else, keep the rules, but they themselves don't. And then when he talks about their motives, he says the reason they do this, the reason that they go after the new converts is they want to glory in the flesh. The word that he uses to glory in the flesh has the idea of counting numbers. They're the individuals who would say, well, we are keeping track of every person that we can influence and add to our, our group that's following us. And they're putting the notches in the belt, if you would. They're keeping big tabs on, hey, I'm getting this convert, I'm getting this convert. And the numbers are, that's all they're about. And then he makes the comment, they don't preach a message that could cause them their own problems. Uh, what he means by this, so he says, lest they suffer persecution... Let me remind you of this, or ask you this. Let's rephrase that. Who gave Paul most of his problems? The Gentiles or Jews? The Jews. He would go in almost every city that he preached, he would start preaching where? In the synagogues. 
And when he would start preaching among the Jews, the normal response was they would resist him. They would, uh, they would oppose him. And they would at many times start persecuting him. And later on in the, in the book, we understand the persecution came from the Roman uh, Empire that we know by the end of the book of Acts. But for the most part, it comes from the Jews. And the reason that the Jews would get upset with Paul is because Paul's message was, you don't have to follow Jewish rules anymore. You don't have to follow Jewish rules. You have to believe in Jesus only. Well, these false teachers would come in and the false teachers would, they would go into the synagogue area and they say, well, believe in Jesus plus keep all the rules. And it wasn't as offensive. And so they would get away from persecution. And Paul says, wait a minute. I suffered at the hand of these Jews a lot. In fact, go down to verse 17. He says, For I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word he uses there is stigmata. It has the idea of physical uh, scars. Uh, Yeah, you've heard, some of you have heard, that people say they have the stigmata of Jesus Christ. There are some who claim that all of a sudden their hands will bleed and their feet will bleed or their side will bleed. And they claim that they are the wounds of Jesus Christ and things like that. And that's, that's, for a whole, that's not what Paul's talking about at all in this passage. In fact, that kind of stuff never shows up as being promoted in the Bible. That's mysticism that would be giving false ideas and false impressions and usually is associated with a false gospel. What Paul's talking about here is, I bear the marks... I bear the scars. And he's not talking about a nail print in his hand. He's talking about the idea, I suffered for Jesus Christ. Because there's times where I was beaten. There was five times I was beaten 39 times. 40 save one. I was beaten with rods. I was stoned. And I did this because I believe and I teach Jesus and Jesus only saves. And the Jewish people hated it. These others who are coming in, they're, they're trying to avoid getting problems. They're trying to be in, in having friendships with everybody. But didn't Jesus say, whatever they do to the master, they will do to you? Doesn't the scripture says, if any man will live godly, they shall suffer persecution? Doesn't the Bible clearly say that Satan will attack the believers who follow Jesus Christ? And that the world will hate them? You have that multiple times in scriptures. And so Paul is saying, I'm not trying to water down the gospel. But these guys did. They watered down the message. They changed it because they were afraid of being persecuted. So in his frustration, it's very similar to Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus is dealing with the Jewish leaders who were opposing his message? And he says to the crowd the last couple days of his life, he says, do not, he's in the temple, he's speaking, do not after their works, for they say and do not, hypocrites. Just like Paul says, these guys are hypocrites. They bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move one little finger. And so Paul, Paul remembers the words of Jesus that this is, these guys are just like the, the Pharisees that bothered Jesus. And Jesus said about the Pharisees, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. You compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when you have made him to be one of your followers, you made him twofold more a child of the devil, of hell. You've twisted the gospel. Jesus was upset. 
Paul is upset now years later and saying, this, you guys are doing the same thing that Jesus said those Pharisees did back then. And so Paul writes in this battles and he's saying, I'm going to oppose you. I'm against you. You guys are twisting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's remaining loyal to the message of the cross. I hope and pray that you, every one of you, remains loyal to the message of this cross. That you will keep on telling people it is not their works. It is not their goodness. It is the grace of God, the death of Jesus Christ, that saves us from our sins. It's all about Jesus. And so that's his battle. This leads us to his beliefs. And the beliefs I've already covered for the most part. He believed everyone needs to be in Christ. Look at how he says this. But God forbid that I should, verse 14, glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified, I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus. He uses that phrase dozens of times in his Gospels. In Christ Jesus. Neither The good works of circumcision avails anything, nor does it make any difference if you don't have these good works. Let me put a modern phrase to it. If you are in Christ Jesus, neither baptism avails anything for getting you to heaven, nor not being baptized, getting into heaven. Does baptism make any difference whether somebody's going to heaven? No. No. Put in there. For in Christ Jesus, neither giving money or not giving money makes a difference about going into heaven. It's Christ. It's not your money. For in Christ, neither being in a denomination or not being in a denomination doesn't make any difference for getting into heaven. Do you believe that? Yeah, that's what the Bible says. And so that's Paul's beliefs. He believed that salvation was dependent not upon us at all. It was being in Christ. It's all about Christ. Then he makes another comment. He says that, you know what is the most important thing? It's the end of verse 15. Being a new creature. Being a new creature. It's the idea, that same word that shows up in 2 Corinthians says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Creation. That idea is that there's a change that takes place. There's a born again. There's a, there's a quickening from the spiritual death that we have as sinners that we're made alive in Christ. That God is working and he's all of a sudden given us life inside that grows and grows and helps us to, to day by day walk closer to him and want to serve him better and try to overcome our temptations. And that conversion, that change is wrought by Jesus Christ, not by us. That's why I said a couple weeks ago, Lent has nothing to do with us going to heaven at all. We don't give up stuff. It's by being converted by the work of Jesus Christ that makes the difference. You and I need to be in Christ. Everyone does. And that's Paul's message. That's his, his belief. Be in Christ. Is there a moment that you can remember where you were in Christ? When I was preaching the funeral on Friday, I used this illustration. That when we do weddings, and I've used it here before, but if there's someone here, just the rest of you just be patiently kind. Let me rehearse this. If, if you remember how weddings work. During the wedding, there's all those plans and preparations. But all of a sudden, there's a one point in that ceremony that they say, I take you to be my spouse. And hopefully the other person responds, I take you. Okay, if they don't respond, we've got a problem. Okay, so they're standing before me and they say, I take you. And then we pronounce them husband and wife by the laws of God and the laws of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. 
And we see that. At that moment, they're in marriage. They're in marriage because they took each other. That's the same thing spiritually. You have to have one moment in your, in your existence where you said to Jesus, I take you to be my Savior. Forgive me of all my sins, and I trust you and you only to get me into heaven. Now you become in Christ. You have a relationship with him, and he then is the one that you put faith and trust in to get you into heaven. Can you point to some time, maybe you don't remember the exact day and the exact moment, but can you point to some time in your life where you came and you became in Christ by becoming by believing in him, by asking him to be your savior. That's Paul's beliefs. That's what he gets at. That's why we say, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of... Put whatever work you want in there. Baptism, catechism, you know, going to church. Those are good things, but they don't get you to heaven. Those who are on their way to heaven, they should be doing those things. But they don't get us into heaven. So then that leads us to where Paul is going to conclude and Paul's going to start talking about his boasting. And when Paul boasts, he says, okay, because it's all about Jesus Christ and not anything else, that's why he makes this statement. God forbid that I go back to what I used to do and boast about my Judaism and all the good things I did as a Jew. God forbid that I should glory, boast, save in this one thing. In this one thing, in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only thing. The word he uses for glory is this word. To revel in. To rejoice in. To live for. To boast about. To claim out loud, proclaim out loud. It's the idea of being enamored with. And becoming such a part of your life you want to share it. And so here he's talking. He says, God forbid that I would do this at any other time. Now I remind you, not only was this weird culturally for the Romans... But he writes, he says, as a whole, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish, it's foolishness. But unto us, which are saved, this represents the power of God. To the world, this looks foolish. To those who are born again, this is the wisdom of God. To the world, this is disgusting. To those of us who are born again, this represents a delight. This represents the grace of Christ. So when you and I start breaking it down, can I give you some thoughts of what this cross represents for us? Why we would boast? Why we would get excited? If you're here this morning and you say, I, I don't get what you're talking about. I just don't get it. Let me share what the cross means to us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. When we think of this, it becomes something precious to us that can become a medallion to remind us that we can put up so when we reflect, so that tonight when we do communion, when we think about the cross, this is what we think about and we give thanks for. We don't see it as disgusting. We don't see it as something that, that is horrible. We see it as an act of God that did this for us. It displays, number one, it displays our condition before God. When we think of the cross, those of us who are Christian, who are born again, who are disciples of Christ, when we think of the cross, it reminds us of who we are before God. This cross 
had the sinless Son of God become a sacrifice on it. Jesus died there. There was a need for him to die. And it wasn't because he was a sinner. It's because I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. And the the cross represents that the sinless Son of God became the necessary sacrifice. And he took upon himself the punishment for my sin, which is the wages of sin is death. And Jesus took that upon himself. This cross reminds me of what I am before God. I am a sinner in need of grace. I am not that good that I can work my way into heaven. This cross represents for everyone here who has put their faith in Christ the exact same thing. We are sinners before a holy God. We are not perfect people. We never claim to be. We admit we are sinners and we, could, we needed a Savior who died in our place. And this reminds us of our desperate condition. This reminds us of how much we fell short of the glory of God. You know, there's situations like in 2007. If you were driving an I-35 and you were headed up from where my parents live and driving up through Minneapolis-St. Paul, you would come to this bridge that would lead across the Mississippi River and eventually lead into Wisconsin. But on that day, there was some 160 people that were injured when suddenly, right beyond morning rush hour, that bridge that spanned the Mississippi entirely collapsed. How would you have been? Driving along and all of a sudden the road literally fell out from underneath you. Thirteen people died that day. 145 were injured severely. And you would say, wow, wasn't there any type of warning? Wasn't there something that gave some kind of... Well, the warning now is, that came after that, was check all the bridges. Do you remember in 2005? Do you remember Katrina? Do you remember hearing about it ever? Remember seeing the pictures? And those people had some type of a warning. Not everybody heeded them. But they were warned even the year before. The the major newspaper in New Orleans had an extensive series saying that the levees will not handle a major hurricane. But people didn't heed the warnings. The city officials didn't heed the warnings. A lot of Katrina could have been avoided if people had listened to the warnings. Can I say to you this morning, when you see a cross, take it as a warning. There is a punishment for sin. That punishment is death, separation from God. But remind yourself that on that cross, when Jesus Christ, to demonstrate God's great love for us. Not only when I look at a cross do I see my condition before God, but I am reminded of God's great love, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son who perished so that I wouldn't perish. This is an expression of love for you and me. We cherish this cross because it reveals and reminds us of what we are, but how much God loved us. We are reminded of his greatness and his great sacrifice. Hey, you want to do the vacation? Go parachuting, right? Get your instructor, get, you know, get hooked up to them, jump out of the plane. Can't you just picture this? This summer, here you go, out of the plane, and you're falling and tumbling, and your instructor is, and you're, you're, you know, 
trying to take your selfie. As you're, you're flying, you're going down, and you're saying, me, I'd be going, ah! And the instructor says, don't worry, don't worry. You know, we'll pull open the chute any moment. And he pulls it, and it fails. That's what happened to these two men. The, the vacationer, all of a sudden, his Costello, his, his you know, instructor, his one that was leading it, pulled it, and the, they started tumbling. Started tumbling. There's a second chute, right? So Costello pulled the second chute. It failed. Now what do you do? That's not a selfie you want at that moment, okay? They're tumbling, they're tumbling, they're tumbling. Costello knows enough how to break this out-of-control tumbling to get them to a certain position. And he does the moves, and as they're approaching Earth, he gets them twisted so they're falling in one position. Costello is on the bottom. They land, the parachute pack on the ground, Costello and then Griffith on top. Griffith got up and walked away. Costello was dead. That instructor gave his life for that client. Greater love hath no man than what? To lay down his life. Amazing. Now, what I just did is ruined anyone's vacation plans to jump out of a plane. Okay. That's okay. Okay. But what is more amazing in that illustration is that a man would die for another man. What's even more amazing is Jesus died for all of us. Not just one. He died for all of us. And when I think of the cross, I think he died for me. And I feel, without exaggeration or show, I feel like I am the chiefest of sinners. I feel I'm the most disgusting of people. And he died for me. He died for me when I was doing the junk I was doing. He died for me. He gave his life. That's what this represents. Somebody loved me while I was yet a sinner and gave himself. It represents to me that I'm delivered from damnation. That by the very sacrifice of that cross, I do not have to fear hell. He says in Colossians, when you, when I, We're dead in our sins, separated from God. God made us alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal, spiritually, legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing all of our sins to the cross. So that when Christ looks at me now, when God the Father looks at me, he no longer sees all that disgusting sin and, and vile acts that I have done. They've been nailed to the cross. They are forgotten. They are remembered no more. They are under the blood of Jesus Christ who gave himself on this cross. I am not damned. I am going to be in heaven, not because of me, but because of Jesus. That's what the cross reminds us of. The cross reminds us that Jesus has defeated, he's disarmed our enemies The one who wants our destruction, Satan himself. What did Jesus say happened to him? We read in Colossians. Nailing it to the cross, that's our sins, and having spoiled or disarmed the spiritual principalities and powers, Satan and all the demonic hordes. He made a spectacle of them openly, triumphing over them in the cross. 
The cross is a sign of victory, that Satan is defeated, that he cannot, will not win the war spiritually, that we are on the Lord's side and greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. That's why we relish in the cross. Paul says, I'm delighted because it represents to me that I am, my, I am no longer under the power of the temptation and the lures of the world. He says in verse 14, the world is crucified to me. He says that, uh, and I'm crucified unto the world. The idea is that I don't have to be living under those old temptations anymore. They don't have to control me. Through the cross, I can become a new creature. I am going to have victory over whatever that sin, that habit may be. If it's an addiction, if it's a desire, if it's a friend or somebody alluring me aside, the cross represents victory. That I can live for the glory of Jesus Christ. The cross represented a doorway to many other blessings. We read in Romans chapter 8 that he that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall we, he not then with him also give us all things? If he gave the very best that he had for us, then surely the answers to prayer, they pale in comparison, but we're going to get them. We're going to get other blessings from God. The cross represents a doorway to other blessings. It represents the dismissal of all the prejudices, all the different distinctions back in Bible days. They even had the distinctions that when you would come into worship, that the men would be in the front and the ladies in the back. And people who were poor, they'd be even farther back. The cross represents that there is no difference, no distinction between different classes of people. The Judaizers... They came in and said, we are the more spiritual people. We are the Jewish background. We're better than anybody else. No, the cross says to you and me that we're all the same before Jesus Christ. The cross says to you and me that idea that there is no difference. Go to chapter 3 and read what he says in chapter 3. And he makes this grand statement about the unity and the blend of the family of God. He says, verse 26, We are all the children of God by faith in Christ. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither therefore now Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, slave or master. There is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. That means that we have a bond and a unity in Jesus Christ that is put there because of the fact that Jesus died for us. That as we are below the cross, the ground is level. None of us is better than anybody else. That's what this cross represents. It represents a unity, a family, a bond that the Judaizers were trying to destroy. Because we're in Christ... We are brothers and sisters. We are family members. Do we treat each other that way? Then remember the cross. Remember the cross. Remember that Paul says, this is why I boast all those blessings and it leads me to a burden. I think about how wonderful that cross is, what it represents, and then I'm burdened. He says, I am burdened to act upon it. I am burdened to protect its message. That's what he makes this whole comment. He says, even that side, that idea, he says in verse 17, from henceforth, let none of you trouble me anymore. Stop. Just be quiet. I wrote this book to defend the cross. I'm going to continue to preach about the cross. I am not going to be dissuaded from its message. And beware of all those who would come and give you some false truth. But he was also burdened to pray for the saints. 
the brothers and sisters that he has now a unity with. And he says in this passage, he says after he talks about being a new creature, and he says in verse 16, as many as walk according to this canon, this belief, being in Christ, reflecting on the cross, peace beyond them and mercy. And he was moved out of compassion to pray, to pray for brothers and sisters, to pray for them to continue to grow, to have peace, to have mercy, to live up to the standards that Jesus Christ has set. But he didn't stop there. He says, I also pray for somebody else. Notice what he adds to that phrase. And he says, and I pray, as many as walk according to this rule already, peace beyond them and mercy, and that peace and mercy upon the Israel of God. That, that phrase, upon the Israel of God, has caused a lot of consternation amongst authors. Who was he referring to that he also prays for? He said brothers and sisters. Oh, oh, this is the conclusion. It represents the new Israel. The new, the church. If that's the case, this is the only time in the New Testament that he ever uses that phrase in reference to the church. Very unusual. Could he be referring to the Jews who have already gotten saved? That's a possibility. Could he be referring to the people that he's related to, his own kinsmen, the Israel of God, the nation of Israel. Let, let me remind you what he wrote in Romans. I say the truth in Christ. I don't lie. I'm not exaggerating. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have a great heaviness in my heart, a continual soaring in, a sorrow in my heart, I wish that I could go to hell in place of my kinsmen according to the flesh. I want my fellow Jews to get saved. I want my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, he says. I want my, the people I went to school with. I wish I could do something. I would give my life for them to get born again. That's why I think he's concluding this prayer. I pray he says that I protect this message. I pray for the saints, my brothers and sisters, but I also pray for the unsaved around me, my relatives, my friends. I pray enough and I'm willing enough to get the gospel to them that I will bear in the future stigmata of Christ. I will suffer persecution, but I'm starting by praying for them. And I'm going to make this, he says, I'm going to make this my message, my theme. I'm going to boast in the cross. I'm going to glory in the cross. I'm going to do everything I can for the cross. The message to go out. Those around me who have believed and are following it. To remain loyal and truthful. And for those who are lost around me. That I know I'm going to pray and I'm going to work. That they would come. And put their faith in the cross. I glory in the cross Paul says. It's all about the cross. I am for the cross. Can I ask you a few concluding questions? Do you glory in the cross first and foremost? As you sit and worship here this morning, what are you thinking upon to get you into heaven? What are you trusting upon to get you into heaven? Yourself or the cross of Jesus Christ? Can I ask you a question a little bit further? Okay. You who are born again, what do you glory in now? Laboring for the cause of the cross or just 
reflecting on what you used to do for Christ and living in a past tense? Do you focus more on your own comfort, your own recognition, your own wants, or are you boasting in the cross that might bring some stigmata? What is the item that is your greatest relish and joy and delight when it comes to the spiritual realm? I'll ask you another question. Will you glory in the cross to the point that you will never divert from its message? You will never alter the message one iota. You will remain faithful to the idea that it's the blood of Jesus Christ that brings forgiveness and nothing else. May I ask you another question? Do you even focus on the cross in your daily life? That you pause on a regular basis to give thanks for what the cross represents. When you see the pictures, when you see the impressions, when you, when you pick up the jewelry, do you think, this represents my Savior's death? Deliverance from damnation, defeat of the, of the evil one, a unity that I, that I have a family like never before. Do you talk and stop and think about the cross and give praise? Will you glory in the cross enough? Which word literally means to be proclaiming and broadcasting. Will you share its message? Will you be for the cross this month of March? Will you say, I will boast in the cross? I will magnify in the cross. I will relish in the cross. There's this true story of a gentleman, a black man, that he was on the Long Island Railroad, came from Jamaica. And he lived there for a couple years, but it, there was stories about how this man, every evening of the work evening, he would be on the subway. And when he'd get on the subway, he would start at the beginning of the car, turn around, and he would talk to every person. And he would say... Do you have any eye problems? Do you know anybody with eye problems? Do you have any eye problems? Do you know anybody with eye problems? If you do, I want to recommend to you Dr. Garl. There was a surgeon that did a surgery on this man and restored his sight. And he was so enthusiastic about him beginning to having his sight restored. Every evening, for months, as he would go home, he would go through that subway until it came to the stop and testify of Dr. Garl and his influence. That man was a witness of Dr. Garl. Would you have that same zeal to be a witness of Jesus Christ who heals eternal damnation? There's a story that comes in the early 1900s, the 1800s. Captain... Charles Jones on this American cutter. And they picked up a Chinese cabin boy, Soong. That cabin boy was befriended by the captain. And as time went by, the captain became the cabin boy's hero. The cabin boy would just, he would model, do whatever he could, follow that captain around, listen to him, and try to stand like him, try to fold his arms like him. He just became his absolute hero. And as others were pointing that out to Captain Jones, he took Soong aside one time. He says, do you want to know who my hero is? And Captain Jones, he shared with Soong that his hero was Jesus Christ. 
And over the weeks and the months that followed, he would talk to him more and more about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as a Chinese young boy, he never heard the gospel. Never heard of anything but Eastern mysticism. And this young boy eventually came to faith in Jesus Christ because of Captain Jones's ongoing witness to him. That young man was so burdened that his family hears about it, he left Captain Jones with his permission and blessing, and he returned to his homeland of China. He and he got married, shared the gospel. He and his wife had six children. Of the six children, four of them became part of the republic government that, uh, that preceded the, uh, the communist overthrow of the 1940s. And in the 20s and 30s, his family members, his children and their mates, they ended up leading a lot of the culture of China. They brought in the gospel, shared the gospel with dozens and dozens and dozens so that by the time the Chinese came in, there was already a groundswelling of churches to carry on the cause of Christ for a number of years to follow under persecution. Would you have done that? Would you be willing to make a boast in the cross? <laughs> 